Hello everyone, it's Friday the 23rd of October and welcome to episode 28 of the Kite Podcast 2020 with me, Ben Eagle. And me, Will Evans. Now, regenerative agriculture has become a bit of a buzz term in farming circles and you might be wondering what all the fuss is about. You can barely have a conversation with an arable farmer now without them talking about cover crops at some point. But what is the news when it comes to regenerative ag and dairy? Well, we thought it'd be a good idea to discuss this, and Becky has invited Dan Burdett on the show to join us now. Dan is a third-generation dairy farmer from West Sussex, milking 300 cows organically, and has recently completed a Nuffield Scholarship study titled Regenerative Agriculture, How to Make the Change Happen. We're also joined by Kite partner Ainsley Baker and, as always, everybody's favourite dairy market analyst, Chris Walkland. Yeah, welcome everyone. Chris, let's go over to you. Where are you this week? Well, I'm really excited about this podcast about regenerative agriculture, and I think it's a brilliant subject for Kite because if there's anyone who needs regenerating in agriculture in the dairy industry, it's John. <laughs> I mean, I'd... Don't get me wrong, he's not that senile yet, but he's no youngster. If he was a dairy cow, for instance, he'd have his own pen and get a bit of extra straws to sleep on. (laughs) (laughs) But we we couldn't do without him. The industry would go to rack and ruin within a matter of... Okay, well, it wouldn't. But we'd miss him if he wasn't around. So regenerating him is a brilliant idea. And that's why my report this week comes from inside the TARDIS. I've watched Doctor Who for years and they regenerate the Doctor every now and again before he gets too batty. So I'm assuming the same principles will be there for John. I've (laughs) got to find the right buttons. Chris, can we only do one person? (laughs) I don't know. Why? Well, I'm just thinking there's there's loads of people we could do. Dave Levick and Flinty and Tim. Well, now you mention it, they're not spring chickens either. All of those could do with a bit of a youthful makeover. <laughs> Dave Keeley. Nah, he's Scottish. They like the rugged look in Scotland. It makes them feel closer to Braveheart. <laughs> but if we do all of them, what about the rest of the industry? It would be endless. We'd have to regenerate Andy. Okay, come on, come on, guys. Stop me. We do need to try to keep the podcast to 20 minutes. I mean, we'd be here for ages if we started on that road. Besides, we don't have to be a bit diplomatic, surely. Okay, well, that's true. So regenerating John is where we'll start. We'll practice on him before we do anyone important. Anyway, on to my report for this week. And we'll start with the GDT. There was a tiny inconsequential increase of 0.4% on the auction, but it still made a hat-trick of increases. And out of the last eight auctions, it's four all, four positive, four negative. Arla's S&P price increased slightly, again compared to the last auction. But if we go back two auctions, it's up €100 equivalent. So that's pretty good, I'd say. Butter is also up 10% on a couple of months ago, another encouraging uh, move. And if we take the butter and skim milk powder commodities off the GDT only and convert them into a pence a litre price, we get 28 pence farm gate equivalent on the board. And that's pretty good. However, the, the auction is whole milk powder dominated. So if we include that and some of the other commodities like cheddar, we're down to 26 and a half. Uh, 
So not quite so good. So far, unfortunately, the GDT uh, butter gains have not dragged EU butter prices up. And again, it's static this week. But at least the price is holding and not slipping back like it easily could in lockdown two. Some butter is coming out of PSA, which is a positive, but there isn't so far any effect or seemingly any effect on the market. Butter futures are slightly down, possibly because that PSA is coming down, but again, nothing major. Skin milk powder futures are about the same, and the farm gate score on the futures doors is still mid-27.5p, which is where they were in mid-September and pretty much where a lot of farm gate prices are. And New Zealand futures convert to a slightly higher farm gate price, but nothing worth emigrating for just yet. Cream in the UK slipped last week and hasn't recovered, unfortunately. It's still mid to high 140s, and that price will struggle to support some of the liquid processors' milk prices in the long term. Spot milk is 29 to 31p, the same as it was, and there's not a huge demand. Significantly, though, we're now in week 42, which on average over the last five to 10 years is the trough week for the UK. But recent years have seen a much earlier trough, and it looks as if uh, the trough this year was actually week 35 in September. And it's been uphill for milk volume since then at an increasingly rapid, uh, alarming rate. Uh, So volumes now are one and a half percent higher than last year. And it's not what we really want to see in the run up to Brexit. So what I'd say this weekend is all you dairy farmers need to nip round to your neighbours and ask them to politely cut their volumes by 5% and then increase your own by 10. (laughs) Cheese is still doing well, but some of you traders are seemingly talking the Mott's price down. And the the makers I talk to are, are pretty bullish and actually short of product, I hear. So if you supply a Mott's factory, just ignore what I say about volumes. Cheddar makers are also bullish and still sitting very pretty indeed. And I'd still have a bit of money on uh, commodity price rises coming through, but not necessarily more farm gate cheese price rises. So that's me done. I've just got to work out how to drive this here uh, TARDIS to John's house, lure him somewhere near and regenerate him into a younger, fitter, revitalized, sexier model. Key question, though, is this. Is the industry ready for a younger, fitter, sexier John? (laughs) Answers on an e-postcard, please, to the Kite Podcast team. (laughs) Thank you, Chris. I just hope that John doesn't decide to have you exterminated after all that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Dan, uh, welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself and tell listeners about your farming operation, please? Yeah, morning, Will. Um, yeah, Dan Burdett, we farm a home farm here in Haywards Heath, um, West Sussex. So we're kind of just in between Gatwick Airport and Brighton. Um, we've we got 250 autumn carving cows um, and we took on another unit in Kent um, last September, which we hope will eventually have around 240 or 250 autumn carving cows as well. So we run I run both of those as a contract on a contract farming basis. So I own the cows, I employ all the staff, but I work in partnership here with my dad and I work over there with the Common Work Organic Trust, a big educational facility. Okay, so where did your interest in regenerative agriculture first come from? 
Um, well, I came, well, I've always been an organic farmer. I came back here when I was 30, um, having kind of never wanted to be a farmer. And so all I've known is organic. Um, and a couple of years after we, after we started, we sort of noticed we were getting into that organic plateau, sort of things were tailing off a bit. We'd um, seeing drop in yields and, and things like that. And so um, we looked at herbal lays. Um, we went to see a couple of farmers, Rob Richmond in particular in the Cotswolds, and we thought we'll give it a go. And we planted those up in 2014 and sort of saw some pretty um, instant successes once the cows got used to them. And it got me thinking and reading more about diversity and plant growth. And um, that, I guess, naturally rolled into regenerative agriculture. Um, and yeah, it's a kind of slippery slope from there, really. Once you're on it, you can't get off it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, let's let's plough deeper into the concept of regen ag. Um, what does regenerative ag mean for you as a dairy farmer specifically? I mean, what are the key principles? Can I, can I just jump in and say that's a really unfortunate choice of words with ploughing deeper into regenerative yeah. ag? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't done purposefully at all. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I mean it's as dairy farming. I mean, as what I've come across. There's very few dairy farmers that call themselves regenerative. It's not really a term that gets bandied around the industry very much, even though I guess there's probably a lot of people doing some of the regenerative practices. Um, I mean, for me, it's about diversity and what we're growing. It's, you know, I mean, obviously there's organic, we grew clover as well as ryegrass, but it was pretty much a monoculture of that. So trying to add other species in when we grow a cereal crop, trying to grow something else with it. Um, you know and that kind of stuff so i think diversity is the biggest thing for us and there are many dairy farmers um, starting to do that now it's picking up quite a lot um trying to use grazing methods which are sympathetic to the surroundings so like um whatever you want to call it mob grazing or holistic grazing but we try and move cattle every day particularly the young stock they get back fenced to try and regenerate the ground um by doing things like that um, and for me, like the social side of regenerative farming, so I'm always trying to give opportunities to as many people as possible, either whether it's employees and, and, and uh, increasing their career opportunities or young people who want to get into the industry and taking them on board for a few months just to show them the ropes. Um, so I think it's, it's a kind of holistic look at it, not just about the soil, but you know, how you treat people and, um, and trying to make a business which can, can benefit others. Ainsley, let's bring you in here. Um, same question. What does re- what does regenerative ag mean to you um, from a dairy perspective? And perhaps looking at it from an industry level, what are the opportunities? I think um, there's a huge amount of opportunities um, in regenerative agriculture for uh, the dairy farmers and dairy industry. And um, just looking wider, you don't need to be an organic farmer to uh, practice um, regenerative uh, principles. Um, the first thing when we talk to dairy farmers, the first thing, um, if we want change, uh, that grabs their attention is profit. Um, there's an opportunity to make more profit, um, and that's from reduced loss of nutrients, um, leading to lower input costs, healthier animals, um, leading to more milk sales, um, and more homegrown for energy and protein, more homegrown forage, um, leading to lower feed costs. Um looking forward then um there's the opportunity of creating an additional income stream 
The basic payment is like a 13th milk check for many farmers. And we know this support is moving to uh, payments for, uh, for environmental goods. Um, and that's what these principles deliver. Um, there's compliance. Uh, we've got more and more regulation now um, on the reduce. Uh, so, so these principles reduce the risk of uh, diffuse pollution from nitrates and phosphates. Um, it's around um, not having, uh, for many farmers and around me in Cheshire at the moment, there's going to be a huge amount of bare soil um, from maize growing. Um, and um, and that bare soil is going to just we leach uh, nutrients over the winter. That's just money going down the drain. Um, and finally, and, and just really picking up on what Dan's just been talking about, it's the right thing to do. Um, it's actually thinking about your farm, um, its place in the community. Um, your customers want it. Um, the retailers want it. Um, it'll lift biodiversity, lower the pollution risk, and it's just the right thing to do. Ainsley, how would you go about um, measuring progress? Now, you mentioned the loss of single farm payment there moving forward, but if if uh, regenerative ag techniques were to be included in a system of payments for public goods, how do you how do you even begin to start with measuring that? Yeah, I think um, uh, Dan and Dan can come in and uh, build on from from what I'm saying, but. Um, so to start with, um, get a baseline on on your productivity. You know, Dan was talking before about how his uh, pr- productivity, his cows had plateaued. Um, so start with uh, soil testing. Know where you are at the moment. What's your productivity? What's coming off the fields? Um, how much milk are you selling? Um, how much milk are, are you producing from products or forage or, uh, or cereals um, or other feed products that you grow at home? Uh, make sure you're monitoring your health. Um, uh, what what are the key health issues on the farm? Um, I mean, some of the uh, principles that Dan was talking about before um, would lead to uh, reduce uh, worm burdens. Um, many of the um, mixed forages, herbal lays, would have what they call anthelmintic effects. Um, they actually help to reduce worm burdens. Um, look at your purchase feed costs. How much are you spending there? Um, I, I mentioned before, uh, testing the soil. Um, so there's really many ways of starting, but make sure you get that baseline um, and see what difference it's making to you. Mm. Dan, would you agree with that? Is there anything else that, uh, that you're doing to measure your progress? Uh, yeah, I'd agree with quite, um, well, I agree with everything that Ainsley said. I think just as far as looking at a payment for public goods, just got to, the government or the authorities need to understand that every farm is different mm-hmm. and everyone's starting from a different baseline. You know, you might have very sandy soils with very low organic matter, or you may have very heavy clay soils, you may have a lot of rainfall, you may not have, maybe like we have, and we drought every year. And so I think it's just making sure there's sensible um, baselines for individual farms, you know, and I think that's that's really key. Otherwise, it's going to drive people um, away from it because it's there'll be unattainable um, goals with it. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say I just add to that kind of wellness and pe- the social aspects of you know providing public goods. It's kind of you know getting people onto the farm, getting kids on the farm, and all the kind of social goods that we know that farming can provide. So yeah. Okay. Um, you obviously farm organically, Dan. For you, what is the difference between organic production and regenerative agriculture? Uh, it's a good question, Will. Um, I think for me, from my kind of travels, I've, I met very few organic farmers. Most of them were non-organic. I think the big 
um, kind of eye-opener for me is that regenerative agriculture is something where you make up the rules for yourself. There are there are a few um, certification bodies appearing now, but in general, it's how you want to regenerate your farm. So as an organic farmer, we have to stick to the rules, certain set of rules in order to gain that premium from the market, which is which is fair enough. But as a regenerative farmer, you can pick and choose and you've, you've got more tools in the in the locker. So a lot of people would keep the option of possibly spraying um, where necessary, but reduce the uses of it. Um, reduce the input so that's that's the big difference um i saw of it definitely okay ainsley um for farmers who are looking to change the way they farm but don't necessarily want to completely reinvent their wheel um what might be a good starting point for change yeah yeah I, it, it's um the the um the term um can actually people can just be put off by 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 the term and actually yeah. There are very, very many actions that um, conventional farmers can do that are really, really easy to do. Um, so firstly, and uh, you know, Dan mentioned this before, if you graze, um, don't set stock, uh, rotate your animals, uh, move them around. Now, that might be a, a cost to, to doing that because of the additional fencing costs. But if you start, so um, the ideal is obviously moving those animals every day. But if you can't do that, Move them once a week. Um, if you're leaving them on the same field for three or four weeks, move them one, move them once a week. Split that field up. Um, when you're reseeding, um, look at uh, adding some additional species in there. Actually, get to know what your soil type is. Um, if you're suffering from, as as Dan mentioned, if you're suffering from uh, soils that are prone to drought, look at deeper rooting crops. Um, look at uh, consider lucerne. Consider um chicory in there um just just actually go and visit other farmers and um go and see what they're doing um don't leave bare soil over the winter so um if you're growing maize or leaving a, a stubble over the winter um look at putting cover crop in there um look at uh look at um overseeding so some farmers might put a um you, you might put a new lay in in the spring. Why not put some cereal in on the top of that? Um, if you're growing cereal, if you're growing whole crop, um, look at putting a protein in there as well. Why not try barley and peas or oats and um, vetch? You know, so so look at those options. There are very, very many ways, um, uh, entry points into this where you can go much, much further. I mean, let's let's talk a bit about, a bit about barriers as well. Um, and Dan, I want to bring you in here because um, it's a really good opportunity to talk about your Nuffield. Um, what what do you think the barriers preventing more farmers from going this direction might be? And and can you actually at this point, obviously, uh, I I know that it's 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 an early point with your Nuffield, and you haven't actually yet presented it. But um, if you can give us any any detail at all, we'd be really interested to hear. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big one for me because everyone, you know, you, it's easy to find the the converts, the people that are already singing in the choir, right? Um, for me, one of the biggest things that came out was research. You know, it's still seen by many outside of Regen as a pseudoscience that so gets labelled. Um, so there's not enough research being done into it. So it's very farmer, it's very anecdotal you know, for every farm. And, and and I'm not suggesting that's wrong. I think that's right, but Many other farmers want to see it in black and white. They want to see it printed in Dairy Farmer or Farmers Weekly, or they want their agronomist or their advisor to come to them and say, I've seen this, these results. 
and there's quite a lot of pharma across the world. There's quite a lot of pharma-driven research that's going on now. And I know innovative farmers here in the UK is that sort of model is working quite well elsewhere. Um, I'd say there's definitely um, the kind of rhetoric that's being used, I guess, like any movement. I mean, you know, organic was like this about 10 years ago, where it would basically stand above everyone else and say, we are brilliant, you are terrible. And it really peed a lot of people off. And I think there's a danger and regen of the same thing happening again. Um, the Kiss the Ground um, movie that came out a few weeks ago has been universally loved or universally loathed, um, particularly down in the Southern Hemisphere, particularly in New Zealand. It's really got yeah. people's backs up. Yeah. And I think it's just really key that it's, it's an inclusive movement, you know, that we all, we're all in this together. The way forward for farming is collaboration. And I know that's not always easy, but... Um, is definitely in this instance, you know, make sure that people understand that each farm is different. They're under different circumstances, different staffing, different histories, all that kind of stuff. And it doesn't happen overnight. So for me, that's the really key thing. I mean, there's a number of other things. Getting a return from the market would be another big one. Um, and that's starting to happen. But yeah, just making sure that, you know, it's it's for everybody, not just for the few Ainsley, just to bring you back in for a minute, if if a farmer does decide to make changes to their system, maybe maybe they they buy Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown and they read it and they have the big eureka moment and they decide, right, I'm going to make some changes next summer. How do they bring other members of their team along with them? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. That it's um, definitely me asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've it's been a hard week. <laughs> yeah, I've I've been there myself actually on on our on our own farm, and um, uh, we we um, we were implementing many years ago a uh, rotational grazing system, and and um, Chris who who uh, worked for me full time then uh, just thought oh, this is just a lot more work. I don't really want to do it, um, and um, and basically it's um, it's taking people with you. So. Um, Dan, Dan will know this. So, so bring your team along to the training. Um, sit down and have a cup of coffee when you have your brew break. Have a cup of coffee, and actually, if there's a um, a bit of a, a podcast like this, or um, or a YouTube video that you've checked out um, that would help to explain it, it's coming from someone else, not necessarily you. Um, demonstrate. So, if you need to, start small. Um, make sure you, uh, if you're leading the team, make sure you're ready to do the worst job on the farm. If um, if moving, uh, if if rotating those heifers in the middle of winter on your cover crop is um, is the worst job on the farm, and no one wants to do it, make sure you do it. Um, and um, so demonstrate, and then show the results as well. Um, show how making those changes is actually lifting the productivity. Um, it's improving the quality of the soil. It's improving the health of the animals. Um, make sure you feed that back and praise um, praise the team for coming along with you as well. Mm, that's some really good points. Thanks, Thanks. Actually. Um Let's talk about who Regen Ag is generally for. Um, do you think, Dan, that we could get to a point where regenerative agriculture becomes something akin to organic certification or the leaf mark um, and retailers, processes, perhaps policymakers also, um, we've already mentioned um, policy to an extent, are just as involved as farmers? I mean, is there an opportunity there? And, and do you think that might actually happen? 
yeah, I think it's well, it's already happening. Um, the Rodale Institute in America have got organic regenerative regenerative organic um, certification because they they're fed up with USDA. They think that the organic standards have been diluted um, over there, so they've reintroduced these as a kind of next level up organic. Um, and there's 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 a couple of um, organisations in the UK now trying to put together some standards. Um, but there is also the, obviously the danger of standards and then more standards you know and then you kind of take away from what the farmers are trying to achieve so again it's you know how can you have a set of standards which works for one farm but may not work on on another farm and that will maybe put people off um there are big businesses general mills have got into it in quite a big way they're working with gabe brown and a few others in the states um but there's just there's another danger of another just another label on a bottle um, you know, what does the, to the consumer, what does regenerative milk mean? Um, what's the consumer confidence like in those messages? And what we don't want it to be is kind of a, a flash in the pan. You know, we were all talking about sustainable farming 10 years ago or five years ago. And now this has superseded it. And I think for the consumer perspective, there's a danger of kind of just washing over them. And then it disappears again. Um, and we just want to make sure that big organizations don't use it just as a marketing tool um so it's got to be, have the farmer at the heart of it and be doing it for the right reasons yeah I mean, that, that regenerative standard that you mentioned in the us is there any premium associated with that uh i don't think so i mean i met one farmer in kansas there's a there's a uh, organization called grounded growth out there and they're trying to team up regen farmers with smaller food producers who want to tell that story so they and then hopefully get a premium for that product but at the moment more general mills are more offering money to get farmers into it so there's there's not actually a premium coming out the other side i guess the the benefit financially to the farmer is the lower input costs you know that's really where the, the, the extra yeah. profit will be coming from yeah okay now um this has been a fascinating episode i think we could talk all day on this subject but just before we go dan you've got to edit you... it well, exactly. Uh, but before we do go, uh, how do people find out more about your Nuffield study done? Um, well, next week we've got the presentation. So the second we got so no conference this year, obviously. So it's all online. So it actually it's great because it's accessible to everyone. Um, so next Wednesday, the 28th of October at 12 um, will be the second series on people. Um, and so if you go to the Nuffield Scholarship website and you search for that and the Nuffield mini conferences, um, you'll be able to find a link to the Eventbrite to sign up for that. OK, well, that's all we have time for today. But a huge thank you to our guests, Dan Burdett, Ainsley Baker and Chris Walkland. Thanks also to you for listening. If you've just found the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening so you don't miss another episode. Chris, Will and I will be back next week for a Halloween dairy special. Not entirely sure what that means, but we'll find out. But for now, have a great weekend and it's goodbye from all of us here.